0: Thank mm-hmm. you. and welcome to the Fixing Healthcare Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Corr. I'm also the host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. His new book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, was published two months ago. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want more information on the book and a broad range of healthcare topics, you can go to his website, robertperlmd.com. Together, we also host the hit bi-weekly podcast, Coronavirus the Truth. This is the third episode of season six. In season one, we had a variety of experts like Don Berwick, Eric Topol, Ian Morrison, and Zubin Damania, aka MD, on the podcast, each opined on how to create the perfect healthcare system. In the current season, our guests are leaders from each of healthcare's components, and their solutions focus on their particular area of expertise. And I can't think of anyone better able to talk about hospitals than our guest today, Rick Pollack. Rick is the president and CEO of the American Hospital Association, the AHA. The AHA is the nation's largest hospital and healthcare system membership organization with nearly 5,000 members, including hospitals, healthcare systems, networks, and other providers of care. Throughout Rick's six-year tenure as CEO, he's been a powerful voice to expand medical coverage in the United States, improve quality and patient safety, eliminate disparities of care, and promote diversity in the healthcare field.
1: Rick, what are the five or six key areas that are most important from the hospital and health system perspective to fixing healthcare? Well, let me break it down into uh, a, a couple of different
2: ways to think about that question um, when we talk about five or six. Uh, let, me, let me put it in this context. Right now, as we all know, we're going through uh, the uh, COVID pandemic. And it uh, seems like uh, this is going to be managing a chronic condition for some time. And when it comes to fixing health care, uh, there are three things that we're dealing with as it relates to COVID, one of which relates to the question you raised precisely. But I would be remiss if I didn't say uh, that there are three big issues we're dealing with right now. Uh, that we're consumed with. And one is obviously uh, providing relief to hospitals that are experiencing distress around COVID. And that relief comes in the form of regulatory waivers to allow people to respond in a quick and decisive manner. It comes in the form of financial relief. The second big issue is recovery. Um, And I, I say that in the context of we went through an experience in which non-emergent services were all shut down uh, and non-emergent services don't mean uh, elective services that can go unintended to. We already see uh, the ramifications of that. So th- when I think about COVID, I think about the three R's. Relief is the first. Recovery is the balance between being COVID ready uh, to respond to surges and to respond to um emergencies but also uh being able to take care of regular operations to provide people with the life-saving services that are necessary then the third r in covid gets to your question uh Dr Pearl and that's rebuilding what have we learned from this covid experience that will help fix the system for the future you know not unlike after 911 uh things aren't going to be the same uh so what do we need to take away to reevaluate, reboot, but what can we do to reimagine to create a better future? So those are the COVID three R's of which rebuilding and learning from the experience gets to your question of how do we create a better system? The other piece of uh, creating a better system or fixing the existing system, I I would say revolves around two other uh, groups of three. The first group of three is three issues that existed before COVID hit that just became more exacerbated, and that is dealing with healthcare workforce issues and the issue of resiliency, dealing with behavioral health issues, and dealing with health equity. Those three things were out there big time before. People were focused on them, but They just became more challenging. And then the last bucket of three I call the classic three. And the classic three are coverage quality and affordability. And, you know, those issues never go away. And how we extend coverage and, in our view, build on the Affordable Care Act how we continue to keep a focus on uh, improving quality and ensuring that uh, you know, we deliver superb outcomes that never goes away and the issue of affordability. So I would group them in the three R's for COVID, the big three, uh, workforce, behavioral health and health equity and the classic three, coverage quality and affordability.
1: You mentioned COVID and I really appreciate you doing so. Can you talk a little bit about the hospital at home programs how they've contributed to better care, and whether these types of programs you think will continue in the post-COVID era.
2: Well, you know, the whole hospital-at-home uh, notion is something that uh, was beginning to develop prior to COVID. And then, um, given the COVID experience, um, it uh, was something that became more prevalent. There there are folks that um, have been pioneering in that area for quite a number of years. You know, Presbyterian Health Services in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, in particular, uh, comes to mind. And I know that Mount Sinai Health System in New York is another example that is in that regard. I think it has a lot of utility. Uh, uh, Most people would uh, prefer to be in the home. Uh, For a lot of types of services, I think that um, hospital at home has a lot lot of potential. Uh, When we went went through COVID and we saw the overload and we continue to see it today, hospital at home has a a lot of advantages. Of course, it's not the answer to all inpatient hospitalizations, but where it's appropriate, uh, and the models do vary, I I think it's something that um, we'll see a lot more of in the future.
1: I recognize that your responsibilities are national and therefore you have tremendous variation amongst how hospitals approach problems. But how do you see data being exchanged between the hospital at home and the hospital inside the bricks and mortar?
2: Well, if you're part
1: of a system
2: Um, and you have uh, a hospital at home program. And of course, in the case of Presbyterian and Mount Sinai, the two examples I mentioned, they are systems. Um, I I think that they're operating within a system, if you will, that is connected. And clearly for hospital at home to be successful, it involves the use of a variety of technologies that are necessary for monitoring and and, uh, and making sure that those connections are in place. I think it gets um, more, a little bit trickier um, where you're in uh, relationships that are not system-related, and that obviously needs to be perfected. But most of the examples that we've seen really have been you know, where the hospital is, is clearly
1: tied into the, the technology with the setting at home. And what are you seeing relative to telemedicine in that context? Well, you know, telemedicine,
2: again, the, the, you know, really took off during COVID. Um, it had uh, unprecedented levels uh, when people were reluctant to come to the hospitals and when non-emergent services were shut down. We've seen recently a little bit of uh, tailing off on it um, as people have uh, felt more comfortable coming back. To either physician offices or hospitals or uh, other outpatient facilities for care. So, you know, the dramatic increase we saw has held off somewhat. But, but I think the catch out of the bag now on telehealth, uh, I think it's going to be used much more frequently. Um, I think, uh, you know, our millennial generation is very, very comfortable in doing things in that manner. Uh, but it's not the answer to everything. There are just so many services that are provided that involve either technologies or, you know, require person-to-person interaction. I mean, as a physician, you know better than anyone that um, you know there are certain things that you just can't do on the computer. You know, certainly we're going to see more of it, but it's not the answer to everything. There are certain applications for telehealth that are very effective and there are certain things that it can be very useful in to ensure access. Uh, you know, you think about behavioral health as an example, uh, where there are a lot of stigma issues associated with people seeking care. Uh, telehealth has tremendous promise in that regard. Uh, when it comes to providing uh, access to care in underserved areas and isolated rural areas, there are a lot of um, opportunities there to provide care. So I, I, think, I think it's here to stay. I think um, it was definitely um, something that uh, was um, proven to be very useful as a result of the COVID experience.
1: You're talking about the COVID uh, time period and one of the things that worries me a lot is the burnout that's happening uh, particularly for the critical care physicians and the nurses taking care of patients. I spoke to one doctor who had four patients die on one day and a resident who started the service with six patients in the ICU and by the end of the month all six were dead What's your thinking or what are hospitals doing to uh, address, I'll call it, my fear about PTSD happening once this pandemic goes by and people re-experience the emotional trauma they've just been through? You
2: know, I I think that it's, it's not even once we're done with it, it's as we go through it. The issue that is on the minds of most hospital ceos that i talk to and i talk to a lot of them all the time it's you know you ask them what their priorities are and it's workforce 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 resiliency 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 um you know uh, it's right now it's not an issue of having enough supplies it's not an issue of having enough equipment it's not even an issue sometimes of having enough beds um the issue is really having the uh staff uh, available. And um, there are so many different dimensions to the workforce resiliency issue that need to be addressed. And unfortunately, a lot of them aren't going to be solved overnight, particularly as it relates to just the shortages that existed in certain professions prior to COVID. So ensuring that our teams uh, are well taken care of in terms of their own health, their own wellness, um, that they are given all of the support that is necessary um, is just totally front and center. And um, there is no higher priority than ensuring that our workforce um, is taken care of. Without them, the system breaks down. Simple as that.
1: Shifting a little bit, to the question of collaboration. During COVID, we saw hospitals that were typically competitors come together um, to provide the best care. Can you tell listeners a little bit about some of that experience?
2: There's no question that um, we saw a lot of collaboration among people that would normally be competitive in this situation. Uh, And and I can give so many different examples from Florida, and the tampa bay area in particular where there were specific efforts among 51 hospitals that were put together uh, to texas and the dallas area uh, where the dallas fort worth hospital council worked uh, with all of the hospitals in an effort to coordinate uh, to the new york city area uh, where the greater new york hospital association and some of the uh, big systems worked together to an effort that we put together nationally uh, in creating a dynamic ventilator reserve when ventilators were in uh, a shortage situation and we had systems uh, donate, uh, and it still exists by the way, donate into a reserve where we can move them around as needed. And then there were uh, informal arrangements where various systems had worked to provide staff to uh, other systems in different parts of the country, because as you know, um, as we went through COVID, there were hotspots in different areas at different times, and we saw those systems come together. Uh, So there are a lot of examples where I'm very proud to say that people were very cooperative and collaborative. And in a lot of um, meetings that I've been in with uh, association boards, that's one of the things that they talk about that they've been proud of, is that, you know, as essential public services hospitals really did come together. The other aspect of this is the value of healthcare systems and the fact that we saw systems better able to respond uh, to a variety of different issues. You know, they uh, were able to move staff around um, from one hot spot to another while things were acute in one area. Uh, and less acute in another, you know, systems were able to do that, um, that were in multiple areas across the country. Um, They had a lot more scale when it came to equipment, when it came to dealing with uh, PPE. Uh, So not only did we see the value of systems demonstrated, we also saw the value of the collaboration that you
1: mentioned. Do you see progressive consolidation being the uh, direction of the future and the solution for the future? I don't know that it's
2: a solution for the future. Um, I think that there's great utility in it. You know, every community is different. Every market is different. And um, I think we'll see continued consolidation because it brings value. Um, and the value comes in a variety of different ways. And I know we wanna talk about how we fix the, the payment system and the delivery system. I know that's an important issue to you, but just as one example, um, you know, if we're really to move away from the fee-for-service system and move toward more integrated uh, care, which is something we need to do, That means that you're taking risk, financial risk, uh, to manage uh, care across the continuum. Well, in order to do that, you need to have the resources. And what we find is systems have the scale to manage risk in moving in that direction. They also have the capital that's necessary for keeping facilities up to date and for purchasing uh, necessary technology. And we do find that there are efficiencies that are achieved Uh, as a result of systems. So it's not the answer to everything, but they certainly provide value. And I think that that trend will continue. Now, again, uh, consolidation can be defined in a variety of different ways. Um, There is mergers, but there are also partnerships and alliances that are created that uh, sometimes achieve similar objectives without outright merger. Uh, But I think partnerships are, are, are the future as we look toward improving the healthcare system. And um, uh, there are gonna be a lot of different ones out there. If you've seen one, you've seen one.
1: What's your view on how we will move from fee-for-service capitation? Who's gonna lead the process? How's it gonna happen? How are hospitals and doctors gonna join in the effort? What are your views on making that change happen for our nation?
2: Well, you know, it's already happening. Um there's no question about it. The question really is how fast will it happen. When I see this this question of moving from fee-for-service toward integrated uh, delivery I think it's really important that we move in that direction because, you know, the fee for service system, uh, you know, someone once said, by the way, it's been declared dead. We just don't know when the funeral will be. And I think that there's there's validity to that because we're all headed in this direction. And it's a continuum when you think about it, as you go away from fee for service. You know, the first stop on it is what you might refer to as value-based payment, which are often penalties um, or, in some cases, incentives that are built into the FIFA service chassis. And, you know, if you're a Medicare provider, um, you're already doing value-based payment because there are penalties for hospital-acquired conditions and readmissions, and there's value-based purchasing. That's one part. Moving along that continuum away from fee-for-service perhaps is bundling. That's a next step along the process. Um, A next step to that may be accountable care organizations. A next step to that may be having um, a partnership as part of a Medicare Advantage plan, providers uh, either on their own or with insurers. Or then you get to the point at which you have provider-based health plans or partnerships with insurers. And, um, you know, we have over 128 healthcare systems, hospital-based healthcare systems that have their own health plans. So I think that that's the direction we're moving in. Clearly, the Affordable Care Act gave some juice to moving in that direction through some of the uh, projects that were included in it. Uh, But, you know, Unlike in the 1980s, when we moved to DRGs, uh, where we kind of flipped the switch, and yeah, there was a three-year transition period, but it happened pretty quickly. Um, I think this is more of a dimmer switch, and uh, rather than a flipping of the switch, we're moving in that direction. It's just a question of how fast uh, we can move and get there. You know, fee-for-service We all know that the incentives under the fee-for-service system are not the right incentives, uh, really, when you get down to it for providing uh, good care. Because there's no financial incentive to do prevention, there's no financial incentive to do care coordination, Um, and uh, those are the things that we really need to be focused on.
1: One of the challenges that I think about a lot, and I'm not sure I have a great solution, hopefully you will relative to the hospitals, is that if we assume that all of the efforts are going to reduce disease and therefore the need for intense intervention, how will the hospitals make the leap between where they are today to a large extent with a FIFA service type revenue base to a capitated one, is there a transition that they can go through to allow them to not suffer financially, I'll say in the 10 years that it may take to be able to put in place all the efficiencies and make all the other adjustments?
2: Yeah, and that goes back to the continuum. You know, Moving along that continuum, I think, is, is the transitional point um, that we're at to, to do that. And, you know, the other part of this too is that, yeah, there there is an infrastructure that needs to be maintained relative to the sophisticated diagnostics and the sophisticated surgeries and the sophisticated procedures that are going to um, always occur in the building. Uh, But, you know, that building that has all these essential public services, that H that we all rely on. That is a beacon uh, that signifies to people that that is a place that is, in many ways, society's ultimate safety net. We see it being demonstrated every day. Um, We're in the process, let's face it, of redesigning that H. And that H is going to mean more than an inpatient hospital and an inpatient acute care facility already. You know, half the surgeries in the country um, that we do are on an outpatient basis. So I think that this is a transition. Um, the hospital is more than just a building. We already see us doing things in outpatient settings, in home care settings, um, in ambulatory clinics. And this is all part of making that transition. You know, as we look to the future, so much service so much health care is going to be necessary for managing chronic conditions. You know, you just think about the fact that there are 10,000 people that turn 65 every day and that baby boom population that's going to require the management of chronic conditions. I think redefining the H uh, to address the fact that service um, and need and uh, consumption of healthcare is going to occur in these different settings, and hospitals need to uh, play a role in capturing that, will be driving us in that direction.
0: One major concern for patients right now is the amount of COVID patients in hospitals. Uh, there are major, major concerns about people not being able to be treated at a hospital or being treated um, as well as they should be for a non-COVID issue. For example, if someone's dad has a heart attack, is his quality of care going to be worse right now due to the overcrowding and burned out doctors, or even is he at risk of getting COVID in the hospital? Not to mention, uh, if there is a major surge, if the hospital hits capacity, then what? Um, and also you have to factor in the numerous reports we heard from early on in the pandemic of people just not going to get treated for things they should be for fear of either A, getting COVID at the hospital, or B, you know, adding to the overcrowding at the hospital, what is currently being done across America to address this? And do you feel like we're in an, a good position right now or what could we be doing better?
2: Well, first of all, um, in general, if you're not in a situation where there is a, an enormous spike or a surge going on um, and, uh, you know, services are available and have not been shut down, uh, for just COVID, um, it's perfectly safe to seek care in a hospital. You know, I mentioned earlier the three R's around COVID and recovery being one of them. And we had a whole task force of uh, clinicians and CEOs uh, that talked about how do you strike that balance of always being ready for an emergency spike or surge, but also being safe for regular care. And I think we have found that balance. Now, of course, Back in um, you know April and uh, March and April of 2020, there was a shutdown for two months of all non-emergent services, and we now see a lot of pent-up demand, and we've even seen uh, mortality increase as a result of people not getting the care that was necessary. Uh, I think we're way beyond doing that except under certain emergencies. That was a blanket shutdown in the whole country. Uh, Now um, we see that occur in certain circumstances on a voluntary basis where we feel as if we have to do that to deal with an emergency. And hopefully those uh, situations are of limited duration. And that's where systems and the cooperation among hospitals uh, to uh, balance the load, if you will, becomes very critical. But I got to tell you, um, as someone that has been in and out of hospitals over the past 18 months uh, as a patient for all sorts of testing, and everything's fine. <laughs> but you know, you have to, you know, do what you have to do uh, for a variety of reasons. And as someone that has a, a, a 98-year-old mother that has had uh, some health issues, not to mention other members of our family, I have never had any concern about seeking uh, care in our hospitals. In fact, I have a much higher level of confidence walking into a hospital with all of the precautions that
1: have been put in place than I do going to the grocery store. The state of Maryland regulates hospital pricing, and everyone seems sort of happy. The hospitals seem relatively happy. The purchasers seem relatively happy and yet the model doesn't expand. Uh, what's your observations from talking to the hospital CEOs in Maryland?
2: Well, you know, the uh, I don't know if it's the grandfather or the godfather of the Maryland system was one of my mentors, my most influential mentor and my predecessor or predecessor before my predecessor, Dick Davidson, Um, and uh, he ran the Maryland Hospital Association and helped create that system, well acquainted with it. And and I served as his executive vice president for uh, over 14 years here on the advocacy side. And, um, you know, Dick was very proud of that system as you suggest people still are. And that system has evolved significantly over time um, from just focusing on Inpatient hospital rates to looking at more of a global system that is now very, very sophisticated and complex. But the one thing Dick always said, um, because when he came to be president of AHA, everybody said, "Well, the Maryland model is coming to the nation." Uh, Dick always, you know, suggested that you know we're dealing with 52 hospitals um, in Maryland at the time. At least that was the number he always referred to, and they had a, a commission that was able to look at 52 situations, if you will, in coming up with the appropriate rates because they weren't all the same for everybody. They had adjustments. And the the notion that you can ever apply that to you know, 5,000 hospitals uh, was something that um, he was very dubious about. And and that's where, you know, Maryland is in a very interesting experiment. It has changed over the last quarter century. While it has solved certain uh, problems, I, I think that the people in Maryland, while they certainly operate within that system, um, they're, they're still trying to manage through it. And, you know, the, the changes that they've made more recently to make it more global is something that is still an experiment.
1: The rural hospitals are struggling through their small size and high costs. What do you see as their future? Well, you know, from a policy
2: perspective, um, there have been a lot of levers that have been put in place uh, to help uh, rural hospitals, you know, the creation of critical access hospital designation of which there are 1400. Uh, so community provider designation, rural referral designation, those things are in place. Now that doesn't solve all the problems of rural hospitals. Um, we still have real problems out there in terms of Ensuring that they stay viable. One of the uh, issues in, that we see is rural hospitals becoming part of larger systems. And roughly half of the rural hospitals in the country now are, in fact, part of a larger system. And in that case, that provides a strategy. And, uh, you know, we put together a task force actually to think about the future of rural hospitals. And um, they came up with about eight different pathways one of which is to be a part of a system. Another is to adopt the global payment system, if you will. And there are a lot of different strategies that they have to employ. I think for a lot of rural hospitals, one of the things goes back to what I said before about redefining the age. We need to think about the rural hospital uh, more as a network of caring than as a building. And when, again, you go back to this issue of chronic care management. Um, and the fact that so much of our healthcare expense and need in the future is going to be managing chronic conditions Fact of the matter is most people want to have those situations or conditions managed at home. They don't want to have to leave their community for care. So for rural hospitals, they also need to be thinking about different pathways to the future. They need to be thinking about how they redefine who they are, what they are, and what they do. And in some cases, uh, it may be that uh, a rural uh, hospital is a network of which they may have you know, a, a freestanding stand, free urgent care or emergency room. Uh, they may have an ambulatory care clinic. They may have a, a SNF that's connected to it or some sort of assisted living component or a home health care service, um, but it, it may not revolve around uh, the building per se. And uh, I think that those are the kinds of things that need to be thought through. And again, you know, every community is different. You know, what I've come to appreciate is that even when we talk about rural, you know, rural in New England is very different from frontier in the West and um, a lot of different approaches based upon the nature of the community that one serves.
1: The residency programs in our nation are overseen by hospitals. Uh, What do you see needs to change going forward about resident education? Well, we've already seen, when it comes to resident
2: education, uh, a lot more focus in the uh, outpatient uh, settings. Um, In addition, you know, they may be based out of the hospital, uh, but a lot of the training and practices occurring in a lot of different settings. And you know, that's going to be really important because it goes back to the fact that, you know hospitals are going to be more than the inpatient setting. And again, certainly there's a training component that involves the inpatient acute care setting. Uh, but we see a lot of training going on in outpatient settings as well. Um, and I, I think that that is going to continue to be the trend um, in the future. And, you know, a lot of the training obviously is going to have to focus on teamwork because, uh, you know, when you get into providing care in the future, if not for today, it involves a team. And uh, one of the things that medical education, for physicians at least, certainly uh, is beginning to recognize is that interdisciplinary teams of which the physician is Uh, A key leader, if not the leader, is important, Uh, but they cannot do it all alone. And in fact, you know, a lot of uh, other allied health professionals need to be able to practice to the full potential of their license so that physicians can concentrate on the uh, areas in which they are really most qualified to spend their precious time. So I think all of this is in, in, in transition as well. And I think there's a lot of opportunities here to improve residency training. You know, the, the, the area that we're concerned about is just the number of additional doctors that are going to be necessary given the retirements associated with the baby boom and given the fact that um, we are going to have increased demand out there for service.
1: The American Hospital Association has both for-profit and not-for-profit hospitals and hospital systems. Uh, Do you see a difference in how well they operate or the role they play in their community?
2: Well, you know, there are three different forms of ownership when it comes to hospitals. Uh, Of course, you have um, the investor owns, as you suggested, the for profit players. Um, You have the uh, private nonprofit entities, um, which people normally think of as being a hospital. And then you also have government owned hospitals. Um, So there are really three forms of ownership. All of them serve the needs of the communities that they're in all of them are under pressure uh, in the same way, uh, to deliver on superb outcomes, uh, to lower costs as much as they possibly can, and to make care more convenient to patients. So I think that when you look at hospitals, All of them, regardless of the form of ownership that they may be experiencing, uh, they really are all very similar in terms of the challenges that they face and the most important things that are on their to-do list. Listen, in addition to the ones that I just mentioned, uh, making sure that they're all working to experiment with or engage in new payment models. Regardless of Ownership, they're all doing that. Uh, working to achieve solid hospital physician uh, clinical alignment, all three forms of ownership are doing that. So I think that, you know, when it comes to uh, the ownership question, everyone is focused on, this, on really the same issues.
1: When I look for the opportunities for every hospital, as you say, with three different models sitting in play to lower costs. I'm always struck by the fact that the data says, at least nationally, if you're hospitalized on a Friday night, you're likely to spend a full extra day in the hospital recovering than if you're hospitalized with exactly the same problem on a Monday or Tuesday night. Do you see some uh, solutions or ways that we can basically get people better faster, which will lead to higher satisfaction and lower cost?
2: Um, interesting question, um,
1: and certainly one that relates
2: to operational issues in terms of the matter that you just raised. Um, I, that's something that certainly needs to be explored. As a patient, I've experienced that, and that's certainly something that deserves a lot more attention and a lot more consideration, uh, no question about it.
1: Let me ask you then another opportunity. You know, the quality we know varies hospital to hospital across the United States. Is there a best way to measure quality and then help everyone to match the performance of the best?
2: Well, you know, when it comes to quality, I think we've made a lot of improvements over the years relative to quality. And there are a lot of metrics that are out there. Uh, You know, the government itself, through Hospital Compare, you know, has its set of metrics that are out there that people use. Uh, You know, let's face it, quality is job one. To coin a phrase, and nothing is more important than ensuring uh, that uh, you know we have the best outcomes possible, and that we work to standardize uh, things and eliminate variation. I think what we've seen is that that's where a lot of healthcare systems uh, bring scale to this whole question of standardization and elimination, eliminating variation, um, and that's where we've seen some real improvements. So, um, you know, the, the whole issue of, of measurement, quality improvement, that is an ongoing process that we continue to work to perfect. Um, I think we've made great improvements, but as you can well appreciate, you know, we, it's an, it, it is a lifetime's work, and, um, you know, w- we have to continue to keep a focus on that, and I, I know that that's something that is always top of mind for our members.
1: So the hospitals have done a really good job at it, trying to eliminate medical errors and improve patient safety. Uh, what's next? How are we going to continue to get better, as you say, with a uh, goal that can never be reached? We have to continually get closer to it. I think it's just
2: continuing to look at what the better metrics are as we move forward. You know, um, When we get into the issue of metrics, uh, there are things that over time get absorbed into the DNA of an organization and um, they kind of you know, uh, time out. Or tap out in terms of that measure, because you know we've we've pretty well adopted it. It's part of the DNA of the organization. And I think that as we move forward, you know we need to continue to perfect the metrics and uh, look at ones that are the most relevant, find the ones that have the most opportunity for improvement. And again, the the folks that are experts in this area are are continuing to keep an eye on
1: it. One of the areas that I know you're uh, addressing almost every day right now is the desire people have for hospital data transparency on cost, particularly, and some of the challenges of providing it. Where do you see that going in the near future? You know, the the real issue on uh, transparency when it comes
2: to prices is what, is it that um, an individual is going to have to pay out of pocket based upon their insurance plan? Uh, That's what I want to know as a consumer and as a patient, Um, and uh, that's the part that we need to focus on in being really transparent about. We've had, admittedly, concerns about the notion of having to uh, post privately negotiated rates. Um, because that leads to certain anti-competitive practices. We don't think that that's useful to the consumer because that's not the rate that the consumer is really paying. They want to know what their out-of-pocket obligation ought to be, and I think that that's where the focus needs to be. The other thing to keep in mind, of course, is that from a hospital perspective, over half, and then sometimes way over half, uh, of our prices are not prices at all. They're rates. They're set by the government under Medicare and Medicaid. We're not negotiating anything. We're given a rate. And all of that stuff is totally transparent. Um, and then when it comes to our negotiations with insurance companies, those negotiations, you know, we're dealing with billion-dollar entities that are in many cases dictating prices to us as opposed to negotiated rates. Um, So I think the real question here is we have to do everything we can uh, to provide the information to the consumer. We need to do everything we can uh, to make sure that they know what their out-of-pocket liability is based upon the health coverage that they have.
0: One thing that frustrates patients is when they get their bill and they found out they were charged, say, for example, $15 for a Tylenol. Um, People understand that there will be a markup for these line items on their bill when they get, you know, get it at their hospital versus when they go buy it at Target, but the the amount they're overpaying on these line items is something that, you know, often immediately angers patients when they open their bills. This, in addition to how confusing medical bills are for patients, such as separate provider and facility charges or even multiple provider bills, drives patients crazy. I think it's safe to say the majority of Americans don't even know how to read a medical bill or understand the billing process. What should hospitals be doing to make this process easier to understand for patients, and what are your thoughts on how to fix uh, outrageous line items such as a $15 Tylenol?
2: Well, you know, um, we probably couldn't have created a more complicated system if we tried when it comes to the billing system and uh, we have been engaged in various uh, what we call patient-friendly billing initiatives with the Healthcare Financing Management Association, you know, the CFOs, uh, to try to uh, make things more comprehensible. And that is ongoing. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, the real way to get at this problem is through prepaid care or uh, capitation or some form of prepayment um, which really doesn't involve uh, focusing on line items and doesn't involve uh, the kinds of issues that you are talking about um, where you know you prepay and you get the care that you need and there are all of the mechanisms in place to ensure that you get the appropriate care that's the ultimate solution for the uh, puzzle that we've got going on right now you know the line item issue that you mentioned that's a tough one because under the old or the existing system you know it's it's not unlike uh, you know the analogy of uh, you know if you if you go into a supermarket and you buy chopped meat uh, for a hamburger it costs you x but if you go into a restaurant and you have it cooked and you have it served to you it's going to cost y when you think about costing out you know what some of those items that you suggested may be. You know, when you get in an inpatient facility uh, or a hospital, you know, you do have it delivered to you. There is sometimes regulations associated with the recording and the accounting for that particular item. So it's an artifact in in some sense of the fee-for-service system that we're dealing with. But the ultimate answer, I believe, is through prepayment. Um, whether it's in the form of bundling, whether it's in the form of uh, you know prepaid care on a capitation basis.
0: Healthcare is always one of the top issues for voters when it comes to selecting which candidates to vote for in American elections. Yet Americans, regardless of political party, feel like not enough is being done in Washington. As an organization that does a lot of work in Washington and has a good understanding of American politics, If a potential presidential candidate for, say, 2024, regardless of political party, came to you and asked you for advice on what would be the best healthcare platform to run on that would have the most impact and most buy-in from voters, while still being changes that could realistically happen, what would your advice to that candidate be?
2: My advice would be, listen, we worked hard on the Affordable Care Act. Um, We supported it. We defended it in the courts. We still continue to believe that that is a platform on which to build, both in terms of expanding coverage, building on the delivery system reforms that were inherent in it, and certainly the quality improvements that were a part of it. You know, Medicare and Medicaid, we forget, those were created over 50 years ago in the 60s. Um, how many times? have we amended Medicare and Medicaid over the years? And we continue to do that every single year. Um, I think that the Affordable Care Act is still the basis for the future. Um, It needs to continue to be improved and refined along those classic three elements that um, we've uh, discussed. And uh, while it may not sound like it's new and flashy, I think that a lot of it is a foundation on which we continue to build. I'm pleased that that is where President Biden has put his focus, and that's where we continue to focus. You know, even right now, in terms of what's going on on Capitol Hill in the infrastructure bills, building on the ACA uh, by extending the subsidies that were expanded in some of the rescue packages for. Uh, the uninsured,
1: you know, that's still out there. That's a big issue. We still need to focus on that. It's 10 years from now. What does the American healthcare system look like? What do the American hospitals look like? How different will it be than it is today?
2: Well, I I hope that in 10 years, um, we certainly um, have more of a focus on prevention. We have more integrated delivery systems that are providing the care to people where they're not bounced around from one unconnected facility to the next. I would hope that uh, 10 years from now, we're in a position where there is um, a real focus on ensuring that people Get the care in a very convenient way again uh that they're able to access the care. I hope in ten years we can have built on the Affordable Care Act to get to almost universal coverage. You know we're not there yet by any stretch, so you know it goes back to those classic three uh you know we need to make sure that we have coverage, that care is affordable that uh It's delivered in a way in which it is uh, focused on prevention and wellness and coordination. Um, And that, again, quality is always top of mind.
1: Right now, we know that the current vaccines are very effective at diminishing the need for hospitalization and preventing death. And yet, even amongst hospital employees, we see a moderate amount of vaccine hesitancy. Is there a strategy that you recommend nationally to be able to address this and have us be able to reach a high enough level to achieve herd immunity?
2: Yeah, well, first of all, you know, we support hospitals that mandate vaccines um, for their employees. And uh, we've worked really closely with the American Medical Association and the American Nurses Association in encouraging the public to get vaccinated. You know, we've been involved in all sorts of public service announcement campaigns, and we've been working with uh, the Black uh, Physicians Against COVID. Uh, we've been working with a lot of different coalitions uh, to encourage people to get vaccinated, to make the case of why it's important, why it's safe. Um, we've been working to ensure that clinical ambassadors, the best messengers, are reaching out to the vulnerable populations. In terms of hospitals themselves, uh, we find that uh, you know high levels of vaccination, certainly very high among physicians, pretty high among nurses, and um, we also see uh, that you know we're reflective of America when it comes to other segments of our employee population that just need more encouragement. Uh, But we support mandating it. Um, There are certain states that prevent mandates. So, um, you know, we're not a regulator. We can only encourage people to go in that direction. It's something that we need to continue to push um, in terms of um, getting to
1: um, as high a a level of vaccination as possible. Thanks, Rick. I really appreciate your leadership as I know all the hospitals of America do, and I look forward to the success that you're going to have in the near future. Thanks so much for having me, I really appreciate it. Robbie, what do you think about what Rick said? Jeremy, I was particularly impressed by Rick's emphasis on shifting healthcare reimbursement at the delivery system level, from fee-for-service to capitation. Paying doctors and hospitals a set fee in advance to provide excellent quality, convenient service at an affordable price to a population of patients aligns the incentives of all. Physicians and hospitals will then maximize prevention, increase patient safety, and avoid complications. Instead of being paid twice. When a complication or medical error arises, they will be rewarded for superior clinical outcomes. The move from pay for volume to pay for value has the potential to improve the health of our nation and make American healthcare once again,
0: the best in the world. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and will tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you want more information on physician culture, you can find it at robertperlmd.com. Congratulations, Robbie, on the success of your recent book. I know it continues to stimulate discussion and debate and will improve healthcare for all Americans. Please subscribe to the Fixing Healthcare podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Corr. Have a great day.